Ushers, we appreciate your ministry. Church, we thank you. We appreciate your liberality uh, this evening. Amen. Praise God. We had a wonderful service this morning. Very encouraging. Those words given. I believe God has a lot more for us. You know how revivals work. Each service just get better and better and better. So let's give God praise as Evangelist Johnson comes. God. And I think I had more fun than anybody else this morning, probably. Amen. God was faithful. And again, I am convinced, as your pastor says, he has much more that he wants to do. And tonight I'm going to uh, do something that God has impressed me, that everywhere I go I need to share a testimony. And I know many of you, you've been saved for a while, and you street preach, you share your testimony, uh, whether at work, on the street corners, uh, maybe during events, concerts, and oftentimes we give very brief testimonies of what we were and what a difference Jesus made in our life. But I want to just simply, again, say something that seems trite or uh, just a saying to much of the world outside of this building, and that, that is that Jesus saves. And the Bible says he saves to the utmost. And our testimonies are very significant. They are very important. They are important to revival. Your sharing your testimony is important to what God is doing in you as well. As our youth grow, as uh, they are introduced to the things of God, as they begin to participate, they may not have a, uh, a contrasting testimony. Well, I used to do drugs. Uh, I was in the streets. I was a gang member and all of these things. We often regale in the testimonies of those who lived brutal circumstances and God redeemed them, uh, gave them dignity, and restored them, many of them that are our leaders today. But yet I've had many that even with my own daughter, as she sometimes shares her testimony, she's she never kissed a, a boy, never kissed anybody until she got married. She never drank a drop of alcohol. She's never cursed. But she said, I grew up in church. And I'm grateful for seeing the example of what God could do, not only for my parents and my family, but seeing other people that had been saved by the power of God. So understand that that is a remarkable thing in our generation, that someone can grow up in a church being unsoiled or untouched by all of the things that are happening outside these walls even this very night. That's an amazing thing. And I'm going to read, first of all, a portion of Scripture that are familiar to many of us in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with a description of a woman that is about to give birth to a child. And it's very descriptive and it's spiritual in nature. It speaks about a great dragon that seeks to devour that child uh, the moment that it is born. And it goes on to describe a war that is taking place in the heavenlies 
where the angels of God and the dragon and his angels are combating one another. But the devil does not prevail because he is not strong enough. And in the midst of this, we are encouraged by these words. Revelations 12 verses 10 and 11 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives until death. Again, these are powerful words. We wonder, how can we have victory in our life? We want revival. That means uh, we want God to stir what is already in our life in some way. We want to see conversions. In our generation, some of you have only heard about the Jesus People movement that took place during the late 60s and into the 70s of how many uh, uh, people who essentially were homeless, homeless youth, hippies, we called them, living off the land, doing drugs, talking about love and peace, but God began to move, God began to draw them to himself, and it sparked a remarkable result, and our fellowship was birthed in that revival, the conversion of many people from many different backgrounds. Now, uh, during my years in ministry, I pastored a small desert community for some uh, three and a half years in Blythe, California. It's right on the Colorado River, right between uh, Phoenix and the L.A. area desert community. At that time, it was about 7,000 people. And we would support the Oceanside California Crusade. This was out on the beach near the pier of Oceanside, California, and had the privilege of working with Pastor Wayman Mitchell uh, uh, during these events. And while I was at one of those events, I had to use a public restroom. And I went into the restroom, and I noticed that someone had scrawled on the side of the bathroom stall, Jesus saves. But underneath that, someone had put pop bottles. And underneath that, someone had put puppies. And there was a whole list of things. Jesus saves stamps and on and on. And so we know that when we use the term Jesus saves, sometimes people will mock and not really understand what it means to be saved. And that's why I want to share my testimony tonight, because it's no small miracle for any of us to come to God. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. In other words, God is at work. It's not just uh, somebody who is knocking on your door. It's not just somebody uh, uh, who witnessed to you in school or on your job. But God was working in your life. And Jesus saves. And I give my testimony and I share the testimony of my father as well because I believe I wouldn't be here except for my father and the choices and decisions that he made in his life. He was from another generation. 
And he was born into a family that was very dysfunctional. I don't know all the details. He didn't know all the details. He was five years old when he and his siblings were orphaned, placed in an orphanage and separated from those that he loved. Five years old in Duluth, Minnesota, he ran away in the middle of the winter, hoping that he could go and find his family, his brothers and his sisters. Eventually, they apprehended him, and they knew that it was going to be very important to place him very quickly. And in doing so, they found a family that was on a very rural, remote area of North Dakota. For those of you who are not familiar with the U.S., this is up near the Canadian border. And my father's experience in life was very dif different than most, being an orphaned child living in that generation was very much tantamount to, to child slavery. For those who had met my father, uh, he had what I call cow milking hands. He had these huge hands, just a strong grip. And uh, he would come into the church in Chandler uh, and he would grab my friends and he would shake from side to side. And sometimes my friends would say, why does your dad shake hands like that? I said, if you'll notice, he can't stretch his arms past, much past a 90 degree angle. And that's because I asked him one time, why, why are your arms like that? He said, because I've been carrying burdens and pails and weights since I was five years old. And so his elbows had very limited range of moment. It didn't stop him from working. And sometimes I could see that there are often pain that would be in his eyes, but he never let it stop him from doing the chores and doing what needed to be done. When my father was disciplined, he was disciplined with the flat side of a hammer. Things, again, that we know would be considered abuse today. He would relate to me, and not in a complaining fashion, but because I, as a youth, was trying to draw it out of him. I wanted to know some of these things, and he would share that sometimes he couldn't sit for days and would have to eat his meals laying on the floor because he had been punished with the flat side of a hammer. One of the experiences that he had related to me when he was uh, beginning to grow uh, and as a young teenager uh, that the cows had gotten out of the corral. Uh, someone had not closed the gate properly uh, and he had run barefoot through the stubble. The stubble is when uh, fields uh, that have been harvested have been cut uh, and all that remains uh, is the straw that is sticking up through the ground. And he ran to get those cattle back into the corral until his feet were bleeding. And the man who, the pagan man who was raising him, uh, reached for the hammer to discipline my father at that time, and he wrestled with him and tore the hammer out of the man's hand and said, you'll never touch me with this again, or I will use it on you. Now, I say that not to make you feel sorry for my father, but I say that so that you understand is that my father would have been a good candidate 
to be a dysfunctional person. He could easily have, in his latter years, begin to indulge in alcohol. He could have made choices in his life because he didn't have a loving family to grow up in because of the abuse. But a decision that my father made has affected me very deeply. Because as he grew older, he wanted to know about God. The family that was raising him, uh, uh, they worshipped and served pagan gods. But he made an agreement with them as he began to grow in his stature and in his strength. Uh, he said, uh, during the winter time. Uh, when I finish my chores, would you let me saddle up one of the mules so I can ride into town and attend Sunday school? I want to learn about God. And so he would get up in the cold North Dakota winter, sometimes 30, 40 below. He would do his chores and he would saddle a mule and ride six miles to the nearest small community of about a hundred people. And there he attended a church where a pastor taught him about a man in the Bible named Jabez, who was a fatherless child. But he prayed and he appealed to God, God enlarge my coast, bless me. And the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. My father became a very remarkable man, hardworking farmer. Everything that we owned, everything that we have, some 1,300 acres, he purchased and labored and worked for uh, himself. Uh, and I recall a time where I was probably eight, nine years old. Uh, I wanted to be like dad. When you're young, your dad is your hero. And uh, he took me along as we were going to take some grain to the elevator. The elevator is a place where you would bring grain to sell it, uh, maybe have it treated if you're going to plant it, or you could have it ground into feed. That day we were grinding some grain into feed, and there was a number of boys that were playing, and I'm the shy, awkward farm kid, you know. I'm not used to being around groups of people, but I wanted to play, and as I tried to play, uh, they were very mean. They kept saying, your dad's a bastard. Your dad's a bastard. And I said, he is not. But I didn't know what that word meant. I didn't understand. And so on the ride home, I asked my father, what's a bastard? And so he knew just from the question itself that someone had used that term. And he explained to me that he grew up without a loving father. He grew up without uh, uh, his family, that he'd been separated from uh, his brother and sisters, and he hadn't seen his mother uh, since he was just a child. But then he began to explain, but God is my father. I put my life in his hands. He began to explain to me, he says, sometimes I worry for you children because the Bible talks about a curse 
that is on the bastard child or the fatherless child to the 10th generation. And so I pray for you. And I always feel that I'm inadequate. I always feel that I, I don't know what to do to raise you because I wasn't raised in a family like most people. And I remember that stuck with me for a long time. And I believe it had a great influence on why God brought me to salvation as well. As I grew up on the farm, you know, you grow up wanting to help and doing things, but after a while, you begin to realize when you have, you know, uh, 160 head of cattle uh, and uh, you have farm work to do, uh, that the work never ends. There's always something else to do. It starts raining. You can't go out into the field. Oh, but you can go and you can uh, uh, fix fence. You can mend the corrals. Uh, you can uh, clean out the manure. You, you know, there's just no end to the chores that you have. I remember the hours I used to spend on the, in the field. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm one of those, and maybe some of you can relate to this, uh, been driving vehicles since I was b between eight and nine years old. I was driving before I could reach the pedals and look out the uh, windshield at the same time. But when you're on a farm, you have a lot of room to make mistakes. And I remember that some of the equipment that my father had, that uh, some of them, because we had to put implements onto them, he would have to remove the mufflers. And there would be often a lot of loud noise, uh, hour after hour of the droning of the engines at high RPMs. Uh, and to this day, I have tinnitus. I have uh, ringing in my ears just from my youth of working on the farm. So I was overjoyed when my father was able to purchase a tractor that had an air-conditioned cab. And I'm sure living in Houston, you can appreciate air-conditioned anything. But it also had an AM-FM radio. And so now I don't just have to listen to the drone of the engine for hours, but I can listen to baseball games. I was a Twins fan. I could listen to the music of my generation and I could sing along and it didn't matter what it sounded like because nobody could hear me. <laughs> but out of that began to develop not only an appreciation for music, but when I found myself, whether it was in school, whether it was in church events, as I was singing, people would often look at me uh, and say, uh, you know, that that's... And, and teachers would begin to say, you need to join this. You need to speak with this individual. And eventually it grew into a little different experience. I began to be asked to sing for weddings. I... Uh, sang for many of my friends that got married, uh, uh, for others, uh, uh, was involved in competitions. I was being asked to uh, perform with other groups that were traveling with adults that were much older than I as well. I traveled with groups throughout the upper Midwest and Canada and into Europe as well. I was signing autographs when I was 17 years old. And that's a lot for a kid growing up on the farm. And I found that when I got in front of people or in a stage, even if it was in church during a wedding, it was much easier to get in front of those people 
if I had a few drinks or a few tokes of some other substance and this became a way of life. My parents uh, didn't really know. All they knew is that people were asking and requiring these things uh, and they made allowances for me because I was the youngest of five children uh, and they thought this is a way for him to get off the farm. Even I begin to embrace that, knowing, again, just the, the labor, sometimes the drudgery uh, uh, of the work that was demanded of us uh, uh, to be able to bring in a crop. Uh, the thought of performing uh, was a way of getting off the farm, having some promise, having a future. And isn't that kind of why people like the Voice, American Idol, and uh, on and on, these competitions, so that people can have a different life. This becomes their hope. This is going to save me. This is going to bring something uh, that we so desperately want. This is the most important thing in my life. And that kind of culminated uh, in a competition where uh, an actress who at that time was somewhat famous... Some of you might know an actress, her name was Angie Dickinson. She hailed from the state where I was raised, and she uh, was a guest judge at a competition. She was married to a songwriter named Burt Bacharach, who passed away just this last winter. Burt Bacharach has penned many different songs, uh, uh, many of them that were top ten hits, uh, uh, even as recently as uh, writing songs for uh, Josh Groban, some of you may know him, uh, some of his most famous songs, Say a Little Prayer for Me by Dionne Warwick, uh, There's Always Something There to Remind Me, uh, Walk On By, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, uh, uh, The Carpenters, They Long to Be Close to You, uh, some of the songs that he wrote were written also for instrumentals like Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. And at the end of this competition, I was asked to perform solo for her, and this resulted in an invitation that her and her husband would be willing to pay for an education at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. And so here is the small-town country boy has a chance at making good. But what people didn't know is the problems that were already developing in my life. When you have all this attention, you're away from adult supervision. When drugs and alcohol are readily available to you, we would play in clubs, and uh, uh, there was always somebody willing to spike my drink because they couldn't serve me alcohol, but they could give me a can of 7-Up, you know, with a few jiggers or something in there. And so this has become a, a way of life. My parents suspect different things. Uh, marijuana, of course, uh, now we know it's being legalized in many different places. Then it was illegal. Uh, but uh, all of these things were affecting who I was. And so about the time that we're ready to sign some papers, my parents were to fill out some financial statements, etc., and things to uh, make these things happen, my high school sweetheart, who was 16 years old at the time, I'm 18 years old, uh, 
tells me that she's pregnant. Now again, this is somewhat common in our generation today. Teenage pregnancy, uh, out of wedlock uh, uh, pregnancies uh, uh, are somewhat common. But in my generation, especially small town America, it was very different. And this brought not only shame upon my family in a sense, uh, but it also uh, put me in the frying pan in a sense. My father pulled me aside and pointed me in the face and said, you need to forget about your music. You need to be a man. You need to join the military. They'll make a man out of you. Maybe they can put something into you that I wasn't able to. And so one week after I finished my high school uh, uh, graduation, I was in Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, uh, now an airman in the U.S. Air Force. Now, how many know that even when strange things, things that are out of your control begin to happen, God has a plan. I'm unaware of the plan. There's a battle that's taking place. I'm unaware of it, just as our scripture says. There's a wrestling match taking place between angels and demons. There are things happening behind the scenes. Even some of you, as you were trying to make your way to church tonight, there were many reasons the devil would give you not to be here. And there are some people who should be here, but they made a choice not to because there's a battle that's taking place. My wife and I were married shortly after I completed my basic training. Uh, eventually I get stationed uh, in a small air base just outside of Chandler, Arizona. At that time, Chandler was about 30,000 people. It was a relatively rural community at that time. The air base where I was at, which is now the Mesa Gateway Airport, uh, uh, housed between 10 to 12,000 troops uh, uh, that were there. And uh, uh, this is where where I have my introduction to not only military life, but beginning to make a family work, raising a child. But our first child, Jessica, was born with a congenital defect. It's called hydrocephalus. Some of you may be familiar with the term water on the brain. Spinal fluid building up, unable to circulate freely. And so as a result, very painful uh, condition, very difficult. And so she was in and out of the hospital for uh, weeks at a time, uh, for uh, many months. She had operations and shunt procedures uh, in which they would place a, uh, uh, a tube from her cranium into her abdomen. And it was a constant difficulty for us to see her in pain and the discomfort. She was a joyous child. She had a very bright smile. Every time we'd walk into the room, even after her procedures, she would see us and she would just grin from ear to ear, start moving around because she would recognize us. She could recognize our voice. And eventually, she succumbed to infection, abdominal infection, gastritis, a number of things. Her little heart was unable to keep up with all of the challenges that she had physically. 
And when she passed away, I remember this was uh, very difficult for my wife and I because I felt if there was a God, why would he let this happen to an innocent child? Our religious instruction that we had had before had no answers. There was no priest. There was no uh, minister that could bring any adequate consolation. In the, Here we are, a young couple struggling, and now we're dealing with the loss of our firstborn. I handled it the way I handled everything for almost a decade. At that time, I started to drink even more. I did drugs as I pleased, but when you're a young airman, that's expensive. And so I began my own little side business. I wasn't trying to be a cartel member or something like that. I was just trying to make ends meet, and so I'd have enough to be able to party with my friends and so that it wouldn't cost me so much make a little money on the side. So we'd buy pounds of uh, different uh, uh, types of uh, uh, marijuana and things and uh, break it up, keep what we had and sell the rest and then uh, use the proceeds to buy additional. And again, that's one thing is you might see it on the streets, but it's another thing when you're doing it on a military installation. Security's a little bit stronger. But anyhow, this is the life I've chosen. My wife, on the other hand, exhibited every symptom of depression. I was ignorant. I would try to drag her from place to place, party to party, take her to the clubs. And after a period of time, she would just say, I want to go home. She wanted a family. She wanted stability. And everything I was doing was anything but stable. And I was breaking her heart, and I was completely ignorant and unaware. All I knew is that I hurt, uh, and this is the way to remove the pain and the fear of the future. And this culminated, we uh, had a friend, a co-worker that I had that uh, was getting out of the military, so we hosted a party. We went up to uh, Apache Lake in uh, Arizona, a beautiful, very scenic area. We rented a pontoon boat that was there, and we're going to fish over the weekend. We're going to drink. We're going to have fun. My wife told me before I went, don't go. I don't want you to go. I need you here. Uh, you got lots of friends. Call so-and-so. You could spend some time with them. Maybe you, you could, you know, and, and I made suggestions, uh, and I went on the trip. But when I came back, I came back in a very different condition. I was involved in a little boating mishap that took place, which uh, uh, caused a tear of a meniscus where uh, my leg literally folded up sideways. And uh, by the time I reached home, my knee was swollen larger than a watermelon and was completely locked in a 90-degree angle. I could not move it. And uh, needless to say, this uh, was a painful set of circumstances. They didn't have the means to treat it. And the base that I was at, uh, they called to the hospital at Luke on the other side of the valley. They didn't have an orthopedic ward to be able to address these things either. Uh, and so they were going to air flight me to William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso. And so I told my wife what is taking place, uh, and 
she says, well, I probably won't be here when you get back. Now, again, that's very disturbing. Again, just the thought that someone that you love, that you've known since you're a youth, now is hurting so bad that she's wanting to go back home. And I recall there was a gentleman who was a retired Air Force Master Sergeant. He worked in the radar shop next to my weapons area. And oftentimes he would come into the work area singing, I'm so glad Jesus set me free. And then he would look at you and say, how about you? Are you free? And we would mock him. We'd say, yeah, I'm free on Friday. What you got in mind? Mr. Medlin was his name. One time I went into an office. I had some paperwork that I needed to get addressed with a friend of mine, and I came into the office, and Mr. Medlin was talking with my friend Chuck. And I'm waiting patiently in line, and he says, Chuck, Chuck, can you guess my age? How old do you think I am? My friend doesn't really even want to be in the conversation. Uh, but my friend, oh, I don't know, Mr. Medlin, 50, 55. He goes, oh, no, Chuck, you're way off. I'm only five years old. Now, I'd always heard this guy was crazy. Now he just confirmed it. <laughs> and while I'm there, I'm kind of shaking my head. He says, because for over 40 years... I become a bona fide, brutal alcoholic. I mistreated my wives. I've went through uh, two divorces. Uh, I was estranged from my children. Uh, I didn't know what life was until I met Jesus five years ago. And I was born again, Chuck. I have a new life. Uh, now I know what life is. I didn't start living until I met Jesus. So I'm only five years old. And then he looked at me and says, how about you? Do you know Jesus? And he couldn't have slapped me any harder. I remember just being shocked is that all of a sudden I'm, I'm just on the outside listening, observing a conversation. Now all of a sudden it's about me. How about you? Do you know Jesus? And I remember just kind of choking. I'm Catholic. And I put down the paperwork, Chuck, I'll get back with you later. And I left. And from the moment the man said just those simple words, I would go to parties. I'd have a beer in my hand. I'd have a cigarette in another. And somebody say, hey, Dave, you want another beer? Yeah, sure. And as they would go and the conversation would die down, I would hear him say, how about you? Do you know Jesus? And I would look at myself and I would think about my circumstances and realize how empty and miserable I was. How much my life was not adding up. Things weren't working. How much I was hurting inside. And so here I am. I'm waiting for the aircraft that is going to transport me into Texas. And I told a friend of mine, can you get that gentleman from the radar shop Tell him I want to talk with him. See, this is important how you set an example in your work area, in your neighborhood, with family, friends, and strangers as well. 
you might not see results immediately. But God sows a seed and He makes it live. And I said, please, please get him. I, I have to leave here by such and such time. It's very important. I need to talk with him. And he came to my hospital room. He prayed uh, with me. He brought some chick tracks with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a young guy, like comic books anyhow. But, uh, uh, and he brought a book, a book that was about the end times. And it was uh, Armageddon oil and the Middle East crisis and prophetic events. And I figured, well, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of time to read when I get to the hospital. So... He prays with me, he shares the gospel with me, and he becomes a very important friend in my life at that time. And I go to the hospital at William Beaumont Army Medical Center. There I'm in traction for nearly two weeks just to get them to straighten out my leg and to get the swelling to go down to begin the healing process. And while I'm in the midst of this, I'm still being nagged by my young wife telling me she's not going to be home. And I remember asking somebody, can you find me a Bible? Can anybody find? And they found me a little Gideon New Testament. It was uh, written in the King James English. And, you know, I know many Spanish speakers here and stuff, but the King James English is the old English from hundreds of years ago. And so I begin to try to read this. And so between the these and the thous, the verilies, the hitherto fors and whithersoevers, I'm like, how does anybody make sense of this? But I remember closing it and saying, God, I believe that you're real. If you will save me, if you will help me, if you'll put my marriage back together, I will serve you. I had no idea what that might entail. I didn't know what it meant. All I knew is that I was that I am going to serve you. If you will help me, I will serve you. And when I prayed that prayer, God came into my room. I didn't see an 800-foot-tall Jesus. I didn't see an apparition, but I knew that I knew God had heard my prayer. And I remember just having my head down. I was literally almost afraid to look into the corner. It was a dead of night, but it was like a light was shining. And I'm thinking, he heard my prayer. He's real. He's real. He heard my prayer. And I can't explain it, but in a moment, God comforted my heart and said, everything is going to work out. Everything will be fine. He comforted me. Uh, he helped me. Uh, and then I began to open that same Bible that made no sense to me just moments before. Uh, and I can't say that I understood everything I read, but I began to see a picture of who Jesus was. I saw his compassion. I saw how he prayed for the lepers, how he ministered to prostitutes, how he called his men, how he handled the religious leaders uh, who resisted his words and his teaching. And I realized for the first time in my life, I wanted to, I before wanted to model myself off of rock stars. I hoped and aspired to be a working musician or at very least a music teacher in some way. But now I realize. This is what I need to be. I need to be more like him. That's what matters. The next morning, I 
found a phone and uh, called my wife. I said, oh, I'm so glad you're still there. You're still there. Please stay. Don't, don't leave. Uh, things are going to be different. Which she said, yes, I've heard that before. I said, no, no, I don't know how to explain it to you. Things are going to be different because it's, it's, it's God. I said, what kind of drugs do they give you in the hospital, David? I said, no, it's not drugs. It's not painkillers. God is doing something in my life. He's real. He's answered my prayer. If you'll just stay, you'll see that it'll be different. And so when I finally got out of the hospital and they're going to fly me back into the Phoenix Valley, I'm still on crutches. But I remember even living in the desert, everything looked greener. The sky looked bluer. Everything just seemed so bright. And when I got home, after giving my wife a hug and a kiss, telling her how much I missed her, the next thing I did is I went to my refrigerator and I took all of the alcohol that I had and I opened it up, began to pour it down the sink. I had a stash, pretty substantial stash of what was illegal substances. But I went, I began to flush down the toilet. I had a remarkable amount of pornographic material, which in some circles was considered collectible, worth something to certain individuals. And I began to tear them into pieces and take them out. And all this time, my wife is watching She's observing. See, I've not been to a church service yet. I've not had a pastor tell me what's right and what's wrong. I knew. God had written his law on my heart. I knew what was destroying my marriage. I knew what was destroying my character. I knew what was making me miserable. And I told God if he would help me, I would serve him. And I can't serve him with this. And my wife watches. Next thing I did, I went to the base chaplain and I went to the chaplain that was there and I said, uh, I just got out of the hospital and I told God I was going to serve him. What can I do? He said, what can you do? <laughs> uh, I do have a guitar. I have, you know, uh, aspired to be a musician. Well, great. We have mass on Saturdays and we don't have musicians. And we've been wanting to institute a, a, a more liberal, charismatic type of uh, uh, mass on Saturday night. And so that would work wonderful. And so that was my first experience in the ministry, playing guitar and singing songs uh, for Catholic mass on the airbase. But there would always be that handful of Catholics that would come in and most of us knew if you went to Saturday night mass because you were planning on going clubbing the rest of the night so that you didn't have to get up on Sunday morning. And I would hear the priest read something out of the Bible saying, the gospel according to St. Luke. And he would read something and I would get elated. I'd go, wow, God said that. Jesus said that. But then I would see people out there all falling asleep, checking their watches nudging each other and didn't mean anything to them. And I said, God, 
you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to help me because if this doesn't change, if something doesn't change, I'm afraid I'll be, go back to what I was. By the end of that very week, I had a friend that came up to me, and you'd have to have known Gary. I preached his funeral a little over a year ago. But Gary was a friend of mine. I knew him before we were Christians, and uh, we used to smoke hash together. He had been stationed in Turkey, and so he had some connections that were there, and so he was my connection <laughs> to uh, s some of these kinds of items. And so Gary comes up to me. He had worked in the radar shop with Mr. Medlin. And he came to me with a little pink flyer, and it had a little animated pizza guy on there holding a pizza, steam coming off of it, and it said, Piping Hot Rock and Roll at the door, Christian Center. And he says, hey, Dave, I gave my life to Jesus two weeks ago, and I haven't touched a thing since. And I'm like, you? That happened to me. And I remember just finally being so elated. Here's somebody who shares an experience with God similar to mine. And so I cleared my calendar. I told the priest, you know, uh, I've had some things come up. I'm not going to be able to do uh, Saturday night mass. Uh, uh, and uh, so my wife and I got into the car. We're going to go here piping hot rock and roll for Jesus at the door. And so we're driving around looking for this address and it should be right here. I don't see a church. Do you see a church? No, I don't see a church. And oh, I must be here, and it's getting late, and my wife finally says, let's just go home. It must be a misprint. There must be something wrong. And uh, and I said, well, no, I, I told him I would be there. I want him to know that I'm a man of my word, that I didn't stand him up. And then it occurred to me, if there's piping hot rock and roll, maybe we could hear it. So I shut off the car. We rolled down the window back when you didn't have electric windows. And sure enough, I hear music. I hear drums and I look over and there's a little hot dog stand with a little four by eight plywood sign with the door in the shape of a fish. I go, there it is. My wife looks over and I'm not going in there. I said, no, no, we need to go. I want you to meet him. I want you to hear what God has done in his life too. And we went in. And again, that's back in the old hippie days when we did a concert. We pulled out all the chairs because hippies don't sit in chairs. They sit on the floor. They had colored lights. Just a handful of people that were there. And the music was not piping hot. But what impressed me is they were trying to reach people like me. And maybe there was a bit of ego that was involved. I thought, you know what? Maybe I could help step up the game here a little bit. Maybe I could help reach people this way. And that was the beginning of a relationship with a handful of people, 12 to 15 people, uh, just trying to share the gospel uh, uh, with our generation. Uh, and I began to commit myself in that little congregation. 
we went to night flying. And again, this is part of the pilot's training procedures. And so they have to be able to deliver their ordinance during the dark and things of this nature. And so I'm working a night flying shift and I convinced my superiors that if you'll give me a two-hour window, that would allow me to take my, my, my lunch and go to Wednesday night service. And then when I come back, everyone else can go home and I'll close out the, the shift. And of course, all of my friends, yeah, they, they like that. Then they could go to the club early or something like that. And I would finish out the rest of the work schedule on my own. And so I remember getting in my car, going by the house. I said, come on, Angie. Come on. We're going to go to church. She said, we've already been to church twice this week. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but, you know, when they used to ask us to go to a party, we never turned down a chance to go to a party, no matter what day of the week it was. Well, if you're going to go, you're going to have to go by yourself. I'm not going with you. I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I told God I was going to serve him, so I'll see you later. So I went to church, and I remember when they were having prayer requests. Uh, any prayer requests? Pray for my wife. I don't think she's saved. <laughs> Anyhow, I went back to work, finished out the uh, shift, and then I came home, and it's after midnight, and I have no reason to really expect that she would be up, other than the fact she's going to be flaming mad at me. But as I reached for the door, the knob literally jerked out of my hand. The door flew open, and there's my wife. Tears had been streaming down her face, but she's grinning from ear to ear. And she says, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I did it. I said, you did what? I gave my life to Jesus. See, when I left... She was angry. She was actually thinking is that maybe I just need to leave him because this God that he wants to serve, apparently I'm not any, anything important. I'm not a part of it. And so she turned on my little eight-inch black and white television that I had, and I had turned it on to a religious station. And again, I want to say something here is that uh, uh, we don't condone people supporting television and ministries. They want your money. Send your money here. They're not going to visit you in the hospital when you're sick. They're not going to invite you over to their house and have fellowship with you. They're not going to provide counsel for you and your friends or your family when you need it. But I believe this demonstrates how desperate God is to save us because as I mentioned, Jesus saves she reached for the television and the channel that it was on, there was an evangelist that was actually known for carrying the cross all around the world. And he would preach just a simple gospel of repentance that Jesus died for your sins. Why would you want to stay in sin when you could live? And you could live forever and be forgiven. And uh, so my wife sees that's what's on. She begins to reach for the channel selector and the guy points at the camera and says, don't touch that dial.
And then he says, there's someone out there at this very moment, someone that you love dearly has just made a stand for God uh, and you feel like uh, you're being left behind, that you're not important. God wants you to know that you're very important. And if you'll pray a prayer at this very moment, you'll see God do things in your life that you could never have imagined. You'll be part of something far bigger than you could ever have dreamt of. And God will bring you closer than you could have ever imagined. And so he said, lay your hand on the TV and pray with me. So she's like. But somehow God honored that prayer. See, God saved me and he saved my wife. But this is just the beginning of the story. Because after she made that commitment, we sat down and we talked at length. She said, David, I want to tell you something I haven't told anybody. When I told you when you were going to the hospital that I wouldn't be here when you got back, I was going to commit suicide. I couldn't see any reason for living anymore. Our daughter was gone. Now I'm losing you. Our marriage isn't going anywhere. And I couldn't picture myself going back to our little hometown and family and the friends and all of the talk and things like that. So I was planning to commit suicide. And the night before you called me, I had begun to wonder, how can I do this where it's not going to be a terrible sight for whoever discovers my body? She's laid out some knives. She has some of the drugs that I had accumulated there, and so she's contemplating these things. It's late at night. Most people are in their beds. And all of a sudden, someone's pounding on the door. She puts away the knives and she answers the door. And it's one of my co-workers' wives who lives about three doors down from where we're at. My wife answers the door and says, uh, Liz, what are you doing here? Angie, is everything okay? Uh, yeah, everything's just fine. Why do you ask? I don't know. I can't explain it. But something woke me up and told me I needed to come over here right away. And they sat down. She wasn't a Christian. Not connected with any church organization whatsoever. And later we actually witnessed to her and her husband. And they just sat down and just began to talk about life in the military and, you know, trying to raise a family and, of course, us having lost our daughter. And so that kind of disarmed the whole heat of the situation. It kind of changed everything. And eventually when my friend's wife left, my wife wondered, wow, could that have been God? And so when I say Jesus saves, and when we say that, understand what great lengths God is willing to go to to reach you, your family members, your friends. 
that he's willing to do the impossible. Because God saved me in a hospital bed, in traction, a nobody, making his life miserable and those around me miserable and changed my life. And he saved my marriage. He saved my young bride. And again, we're going on 47 years married now. That's no small miracle. We raised our kids in church. We have kids that are in ministry, grandkids that are serving God. And so Jesus saves even more than we can imagine. Now going back to that little church in Chandler, small community, again, about 30,000 people at that time. Pastor came to myself and my neighbor, who actually was my first convert, his name was Bob Corvo, and said, our leaders said, if something doesn't happen pretty soon, we're going to have to close the church. It's been here for a while. It's not supporting itself. There's not enough happening. And I remember asking the pastor, well, what would happen with people like us? What would we do? And the response was, if you want to remain in the fellowship, you would probably have to go to Tempe. That would be the closest church to the military base that time. And but would you fast with me? And so we prayed and we fasted. He said, I want you to tell anybody. I want you just to believe God with me. And so we fasted an extended period of time. We prayed and we just continued to do what we were taught to do. We'd pass out flyers. We'd share our testimony and uh, almost get in fights and all other kinds of stuff. But uh, and just when it seemed like nothing was going to happen and they were going to close the church, I had a coworker that I used to play a lot of squadron sports with him. We were on baseball, softball, fast pitch, slow pitch, all things, of course, to keep us in condition, uh, flag football, volleyball. We did all these things together. <clears throat> they had isolated me from my coworkers and put me in a debrief section because there had been too much controversy. I had begun to remove pornographic material and things that were in the work area and in the uh, uh, lavatories and stuff, and I would replace it with gospel tracks and stuff. And so, needless to say, everybody's mad at me. But not only that, it stirred enough that they had to make a, a directive that came down from our superiors that said no publications at all allowed in the uh, squadron work areas except for official Air Force or Department of Defense publications. Now they hated me even worse. No alcohol, no substance, no drinking on the premises except for designated squadron celebrations and things of that nature. So it changed the whole complexion of the whole work area and who was to blame. So they had isolated me in this little place, figuring that's going to keep me away away from uh, the others uh, uh, that are there. Uh, but this co-worker of mine uh, came and he took one of the gospel tracts, he tossed it on my desk and said, are you the one who keeps putting these things around the squadron? And I'm thinking I'm just in for another fight. So I'm reaching into my pocket. Yeah, you want another one? 
And he said, keep up the good work. You're getting through. And then he left. And I had a group of pilots that were coming in that I had to debrief and, and stuff. But I remember, thinking, oh, I need to get a hold of him. I need to see what's going on here. And this young gentleman began to share with me is that he was brought up in an educated household. His grandfather was one of our United States Supreme Court justices. His mother was working for the state of Arizona's attorneys general. He had a, his father was a, a lawyer as well. His uncle owned the Seattle Seahawks at that time. He came from money, came from education. But as he was working as an airman and he began to see is that, you know, my life, my emptiness is no different than all my co-workers. The people that I've seen with education, they still go through divorce. They still have pain. They still have all these things. And so I was going to take my Z28 Camaro and I was going to drive it off of a cliff. And I told God, if you're real, this is your chance to let me know or I'm going to commit suicide. And God intervened in that situation. God answered his prayer and told him, come see me. I'm nobody, but I'm a friend, I'm a co-worker. He already knows about my testimony. And this began a relationship that uh, uh, later that night, I received a phone call, and again, indulge me just a little bit longer. I received a phone call. My wife had answered the phone. I, uh, you know, she wakes me up and she says, "It's that guy you were telling me about. He's a, he he needs to talk with you." And me being very spiritual, I said, "Can you tell him? Can it wait till the morning?" And he's no, he's he's urgent. He wants to speak to you. And so I answered, "Yeah, what?" He says, there's too many questions, Dave, just too many questions. I can't answer them all. I need you to come. Would you come? And I said, yeah, give me a moment. Let me put on my clothes, and I'll be down through the dormitory, and uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come. And when I went to the dormitory, I remember going to the second floor, and the moment I touched the door, I could feel the presence of God. I opened the door, and I looked down the corridor, the hallway near where his room was and there was a whole group of people and I remember feeling the presence of God almost like it was a thick fog and it wasn't people smoking marijuana in the dormitory. God is doing something but as I'm walking towards his room I'm thinking oh no what did he do? Did he do something drastic? What's going on? Why are all these people around Hugh's room? But as I began to walk closer, they began to kind of part and, and say, here he is, here he is. And, and I went into his room, and here's my friend uh, seated on his lazy boy recliner. There's airmen on the bunk beds. Every square inch of space within his room is filled with airmen. He has his Bible open, and he's trying to answer their questions. And he says, Dave, I'm glad you're here. They got a lot of questions. And so I sat there probably for the next three or four hours just answering questions about conversion and repentance. Uh, and again, it's, sinners have a lot of questions. 
The next church service we had, we went from under 20 people to over 100 people. We had over 90 converts in the process of about a week of people who prayed a prayer of repentance. Some of those men, you know, if you go to Chandler, some of them are ushers. They are uh, men, women that are uh, a part of the foundation of that church. Uh, some of them went on to be pastors and missionaries as well. People in ministry that were discipled and trained within that congregation. People that are still supporting the church today. So when I say Jesus saves, I know how he saved me how he saved my father, how he saved my wife and my marriage, how he saved friends and actually an entire work area, how he saved a church that was about to be closed that now is a conference center in a community of almost 200,000 to 300,000 people who could have dreamed an influx of people in this small little desert community of people who were uprooted and looking for a church open to the gospel. See, God saves. Jesus saves people. He saves marriages. He can save work areas. There was a time where literally when uh, all my neighbors were saved. I can't say that right now. I'm still working on them. We have them over for grill and, and stuff. We go bike riding and hiking with them and stuff just because we want to see our neighbors saved. There's a time where when we came to church, my car was filled with my neighbors and coworkers because that's how Jesus saves. And that church now, again, planting, again, you know, nearly 200 churches now throughout the U.S. and the world. And those churches are planting churches as well. I could never have imagined that. When I gave my life to Jesus in a dark hospital room in 1979, I couldn't imagine that God would bring me here to share this testimony of how Jesus saves. See, your testimony, what you share with your friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, regardless of their age, the drove of people that are coming across the border, I believe this can fall out for the furtherance of the gospel because Jesus saves. And he saves to the utmost. I wonder if we can bow our heads for a moment and just close our eyes briefly. Again, thank you for indulging me. But I felt it's important. I believe God has spoken to me about sharing at length of what he did in my life and what I've observed, what I've seen. And hoping that this will inspire you as well. If you're here and you're not saved, maybe you're a dysfunctional person, you've been abused, you've been neglected, you've been broken, and so you keep people at a distance, and Jesus can save you. He can change your circumstances. 
can change everything about what you're experiencing. But it begins with you turning from your sin and asking Him to come into your life. Maybe some of you are struggling in relationships at home. God can save your marriage. But it's up to you. You have to make a decision. And I wonder if you'd slip up your hand saying, Brother Johnson, please pray for me. I need God. I want His help for my life. I want Him to save me like He has saved others. I want Him to answer my prayers like He has answered others' prayers. And tonight, this is your opportunity with an uplifted hand. Please pray for me. I want to be reconciled with God. See that hand back there. God bless you. I'm so glad that you're here. So glad that all of you have come. I see a young hand over here as well. I thank God for you. Are there others? Honest hearts. Maybe you're backslidden in your heart. You're distant from God. God wants to speak to you tonight as well and reconcile you with his will. Are there others with an uplifted hand? You join these. I want to pray for you tonight before we do anything else. Let God have his way in your life. Let him save you. Let him save people around you. And you'll be eternally grateful. You'll be glad you did. Others tonight. Hallelujah. Those that lifted their hand, would you look at me just for a moment? Would you take a moment and just step here to the front? Thank you so much for coming. Amen. God bless you. And the young boy over there, if you want to come and pray as well, kind of privileged to pray with you. Sister, so glad that you're here. God, comfort my sister. Help her, oh God, tonight. Let her know that you're real, oh God, that you mend the broken heart. Uh, Lord, that you can establish, oh Lord, protection and guidance, oh Lord. Uh, Lord, that your spirit, Lord, even uh, Lord, bring revelation and understanding. Hear her prayers tonight in Jesus' name. My sister's going to pray with you tonight. Thanks so much for coming. I believe God's going to break into your life. You know, he knows you by name. Jesus even said that our Heavenly Father knows the number of hair on our head. I wouldn't even want to count yours. <laughs> that means he knows all the details of your life. And if you'll serve him, you'll see him do things you could never have imagined. Believe that? My friend's going to pray with you tonight. Amen. Church. Again, I want to just provide an opportunity for you as well. God's speaking to you. Maybe you've been afraid to share your testimony. They overcame the dragon, Satan, that devil of old, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's how we have revival. That's how we have joy. That's how we bring the peace of God, not only into our lives, but into others. Your testimony is so important. As we stand tonight, our brethren are going to lead us in a song. Come, find a place to pray. Let's have God, uh, let God have his way. Amen. Jesus, I thank you, O oh Lord. Oh Lord.